Hello and welcome to the Revelation On Demand podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Myers. Joined with me today is Chris Hess. How are you doing today, Chris? You know, I've, I've got a lot of I got a lot of feelings today. And as someone who wouldn't claim to be an empath, um, that that should mean something. Oh yeah, how are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling a little conflicted in a in a positive way, actually, with um, just trying to get my life changed and um, also just viewing how the world is perceiving a lot of the action going on right now and thinking that you know we all need a little more Jesus in our life. I've definitely changed for the better ever since we started reading through revelations. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and I can say amen to, we need a little more Jesus in our lives. There's just so much hate going on right now. And for those of you who aren't going through this currently, there has been some uh, major riots in some of the biggest cities here in America due to uh, people what exactly are they riding over? Oh yeah, the the guy who got shot or killed by a cop, and it turned into a race war. What really upset me personally, I'm gonna go first on this, Chris, uh, was that Shoot. to to begin with this when when this first happened, everyone would thought this was a tragedy. You know, like everyone was on the same side. Like this cop is a murderer. Like throw the book at him. So let's get together and do this. And all of a sudden, someone had to just make it about race which just was out of left field for me how are you how are you taking this whole thing oh okay so that's the direction you're leading it with um and that's true because you're a very unbiased person you look at two men and well multiple men involved but the primary two men that were involved and you're like oh huh i guess we do have to apply our um our lens our societal politically correct lens to this. Um, how I feel about it is, I mean, it's one of those, it, I mean, it's a landmark event for sure of what has become of it. I, I, I guess the initial instance, I wasn't there. I, I can't partake on either side. Right. I, I want uh, my sympathies go out to the victim and to those who have been victimized by this more so than, my, uh, any sort of anger or frustration with all the efforts and how you know one side has contributed more so than the other it seems pretty balanced right now um talking about the rioters and the police force um god bless law enforcement nothing against them but uh yeah it's it's a complicated situation for at mm -hmm. least from my end and it's it's just more chaos that you know it's like God is challenging me to to keep a level head with this because, like I said in the first episode, uh, I don't think this is the end of the world. I don't think coronavirus is the beginning of the end of the world. So first we start with a plague, and now we're going on to un unrest, which is kind of a, a theme in the book we're studying, isn't it, Chris? <laughs> that we, I mean, we've gone over this for the past couple hours, so I mean... Uh, just on and off over the past few days, I should say. Yeah. And we spent about a good hour discussing this before we started recording. And it's uh, like, where where do you really look at this from other than a biblical standpoint to stay sane mm -hmm. or level-headed? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I will just keep praying for everyone involved in this, and we'll, we'll continue on with our work here. So I have some notes from episode one. Do you have anything you'd like to start with? from last episode right so big summary 
of what had happened condenses down to, if you remember John the Disciple, he was confronted by Jesus years after the Lord Jesus had risen to heaven. Once again, while John was in spirit, and he saw Jesus in a new form, and Jesus presented him some uh, very specific visualizations and uh, I don't want to say ideology, but that uh, that almost seems like the most accurate way to say it because uh, it's so hard to really kind of imagine it because it was just that unfathomable. He showed him seven lampstands, told them what they were about, uh, referring to uh, each one of them being a church, as well as with the seven stars that he held in his hand. And he wants the Basically, he wants the light of the seven lance stands to be unified with the seven stars in his hand. And the seven stars in his hand happen to be angels. Um, his image and his complexion of himself, Jesus, had completely changed. Uh, I know that sounds complicated, uh, though if you give it a quick read through, it makes a lot more sense. Um, now, you found some specific things about the last chapter mm-hmm. that you added what 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 would you like to say about those? Yeah, I, I going off the seven last stands. It's funny how we just finished recording this episode, and I was continuing my study. I was like, oh, look what else I missed from the first episode, or from the first chapter. And the seven lamp stands are a big image in the Bible, and it comes all the way back from Leviticus when they were building the um, the tabernacle, and the there was seven lamp stand. Uh, thing in there that the Jews still use to this day, which is called the menorah, and that's that funky shan- uh, candle holder-looking thing. That's the that's the the image that he's trying to draw. I know that it's depicted in a lot of art as seven individual lampstands, but this was just kind of alluding to that. Another thing was that one of our listeners pointed out that at seven minutes exactly was when we first mentioned the importance of seven which I thought was kind of funny. And uh, we're not quite at seven minutes yet, and we're already talking about seven. But And then the seven stars are often used in this time period to uh, to recognize uh, deity or, or authority. A lot of the money would have seven stars on it of the time in Rome, and like you'd see seven stars often accompanied with any pictures of uh, other deities at this time. So that's just, it, it signifies it's, it's, uh, Jesus is using a, a established symbol of the time to further his credit, you know, as yeah. being a deity. I mean, that's very, um, sociological if you put it that way. And just, uh, just as a quick recap, he has seven stars in his hand, tells John, that these seven stars represent seven angels that are going to seven respected churches. And that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start on the first handful of churches and each proclamation and message that John is to present to these churches. And they're scattered across Asia. Um, Uh, They're all in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, actually. Okay. Yeah, so... Keep in mind when we're going through this, we are looking at this to take out what messages we can get 
from these seven churches today because each each of the seven churches is is dealing with a very specific uh, kind of challenge that even we today see still. So um, if we're going through the f- chapter two today, and that's the first four churches, which is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And we will be looking into what exactly Jesus is trying to tell these churches and what what we can get gained from that today. Okay. So we're definitely going to start with Ephesus. Um, JD's got some great info on this. Yeah. And uh, so Ephesus was a big uh, cultural and commercial hub at, in this time period. It was a port, so it was a lot of trade coming in and out of here. So this was a rich city. Uh, many of the cities that we're looking at are, were rich for this time. Uh, the home of the temple of Artemis was here in Ephesus. And this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And also one of the biggest challenges Christians in Ephesus face. And it's a very cosmopolitan city for the time. It's, it's built up. I mean, what we, I often hear that, these churches or these cities were much like modern day New York or London or Berlin or Tokyo. You, this is the kind of, it wouldn't be so impressive for a modern person to see it, but at that time, that's the kind of city that we'd be looking at. Would you like to read the first section for us? I sure can. And just based off of that info we just gave, we're going to do that for each of the churches, each of the four churches. Yep. So, um, and they're going to start a little something like this. All right. Revelations two, one to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are wor- these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. You, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Wonderful, wonderful scripture. And uh, so the church of Ephesus is, is known for being the church that does church like deeds. You know, they go out, they help people. They, they're, they're working in the community as a church to help people as we are, you know, called to do, we are called to do good works. But the big issue here is that they have lost their love for Christ. So they're not, they're, they're going out and doing what they're supposed to do. But this is, this is a acts without love is, is not true faith. And uh, then the Nicolaitans is a group of technically ex-Christians who 
have started to embrace a lot of the cult of the cultural uh, things that happen here. And like I said earlier, this is the, the temple of Artemis, which is a fertility goddess. And uh, they do all sorts of um, terrible, terrible things uh, talking about uh, sexual immorality and uh, drugs and, and just terrible things that they're doing. So these Nicolaitans were Christians that have started to do those things and, and kind of, become part of the culture so they're they're becoming part of the world they're not you know living in the world and uh one of the big things was the agora which is a big marketplace you had to burn a pinch of incense to the emperor which was considered a deity in rome oh whoever was yeah no the whoever was the emperor of rome was considered a god so when you entered the Agora, you had to take a pinch of incense and burn it on this incense burner, which was to signify your loyalty to the deity, the Roman emperor. Well, if you, anyone who knows Christianity knows that that's a big red flag, that's like number one. There, you'll have no gods before me, right? So mm-hmm. as Christians, they started running into this issue. They couldn't go into the Agora and take place in the market. Because they refused to, well, not all of them, but most of them refused to uh, burn this incense and so show fealty to Caesar over God, which was pretty impressive. And uh, yeah, so talking about that. Um, um, so just going based off of what you were saying about the Agora, uh, this is something we went over. Is um, so. Yeah, based off of based off of most of these practices and stuff, not just the agora, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, the removal of the lampstand, when he specifically mentions it, is also because of the fact that these churches didn't endure. I think that's the biggest part of the problem here: is they're hardworking Christians or hardworking "quote unquote" good dear good good people who get involved in all this mm-hmm. and they end up you know fading away their church body isn't an isn't an enduring one i should yeah, say yeah and we even see this today when churches you know they'll go out and they'll they'll serve the community and stuff like that but when they come to be as a, a body they don't show any you know love for christ so they they're 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 just doing they're going through the motions as christians more than less so this this kind of faith when you walk into a church most people aren't impressed with this because anyone anyone even pagans can do good deeds you know so what what separates us from anyone else if we're just doing good things for the community you know so that's that's what the warning of ephesus is is that just because you do good in the community doesn't mean you're a true follower. You have to also believe and love Christ above all others. So, yeah, I mean, and if you kind of think about that in a real world application or a modern time application, we see that in a lot of um, we see that in a lot of causes. You know what I mean? So, okay, what are you fighting for? We're fighting for. Um, the right for freedom of passage of a certain person mm-hmm. okay well what what's inspiring this and they they just don't know it's like asking someone to write a thesis paper and they don't have a major subject on what that thesis is they do a great job at writing it but there's no passion in there um i like what jd 
had said, which is, it's a church without a love for Christ, or a, a church without a love for Christ is no church at all. Yeah. So it, it doesn't represent the body of a church, just like he was saying. And we're going to see a lot of this, um, going back to what you were saying a little bit earlier, we're going to see some of this mythological, uh, you, he had a better word for it when he was describing the Nicolaitans. Uh, but you're going to see some of this, I don't know if it's just a way of ancient practice or something that's just outside of the bounds of what should be doing, we should be doing just for the sake of doing it among these churches. Yeah, and, and today we don't necessarily have... I guess you could call some things rituals, but there's there's things today that as Christians we shouldn't stand for, but uh, we still allow it. And that's that's kind of what it's talking about. If you don't have your heart in the scripture and you're not, you know, if your heart's not in the scripture, you're not following Christ. That's that's the big thing, you know. Yeah. I, I know I went way off course with that. Thank <laughs> that's you for all right. summarizing that's, that's that. all right. That's all right. I, I was bringing you back. I was wondering where you're going with that, but that's that's great. So uh, we're going to carry on to Smyrna next, unless you have something else to add. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think I got all my passion for Ephesus out in that short tidbit. Okay. Uh, it's just for the record, we are talking about Smyrna. Uh, we keep going back and forth on the pronunciation of Smyrna or Smyrna. The next church is named Smyrna. Yeah, and Smyrna actually is named after the biggest trade in this city, which is myrrh, which if anyone knows about the 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 Christmas thing that we always talk about, myrrh, frankincense, the gifts that the wise men bring, this is like the biggest hub for myrrh trade in Lesser Asia. Uh, this uh, Smyrna also had a large number of Jews who were hostile to, towards Christians, which is quite interesting. It is famous because of uh, the Greek poet Homer, which most people know from the Odyssey, was born here. Smyrna was an incredibly wealthy port city, which makes the Christians' poverty all the more distinct. So what was really uh, set aside was like the Jews in, in their synagogues were were just rolling in this wealth that the trade of the city had, whereas the Christians were, were paupers. They, they had almost nothing to their name. And... Uh, uh, Alexander the Great rebuilt Smyrna, quote-unquote, resurrecting it from when it was just a small farming town. So, oh. would, you, would you like to read the next passage in the Church to Smyrna? I can most certainly do that. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Yeah. So, and then every time I hear whoever has ears, let them hear it. I just go back to how many times Jesus said that during 
all his you know touring around before his his crucifixion that's just that's that's like reiterating reminding the reader you are listening to jesus christ <laughs> you know <laughs> you got a point there yeah so this church is is really faithful to christ and and they're they're doing everything that they can under the heel of the jews and the roman government and uh, there, there is a coming persecution that is going to be much worse. And this, this is seen throughout history. This can be seen even to this day. There's Christians who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and the fact they re- refuse to renounce, you know, Jesus as as the king, the resurrected king, and. Um, one important point to remember from this is that our suffering now will never compare the length to a in length to the eternity in heaven, which is a wonderful thing to to kind of mull over when you're going through tough times. I know that I personally have had some tough times lately, and just thinking about how you know when I get to heaven, it'll it'll be this is just a flash in the pan. So I, I can look forward to, and that can help get me through tough times, which is which is more relevant now than I ever thought it would be. And then, yeah, you got anything to add there? Um, no, I, I think you should go ahead with this because, um, I mean, I've just heard so many times that, um, the fact that God wants us to have, and you know, that Jesus wants to have us to have a painless death is a really, uh, is a real significant thing when, you look at the fact that he doesn't want us to endure that suffering. You think he doesn't want us to endure suffering? Because I think all the way the apostles died was pretty painful. (laughs) Well, that being said, there was only... He wants us to endure and to build on our life, but he doesn't want us to endure the same suffering that he had endured in his life. Well, he paid for our sins on the cross with that suffering. And and then carrying on, the second death he's referring to is brought up a few times in Scripture. It's very vague, something hard to, to nail down exactly. But this is talking about uh, a second death would be after you die being separated from God and going to hell, pretty much. So that's what it's talking about when they say when he says... The second death will not have. We shouldn't fear the second death. It's because when we die, we're not going to die. We're going to be resurrected during the re- the revelation. Oh, of course, so. right? Which Jesus did, uh, depending on where you read it, and depending on uh, what your congregation is. Jesus did experience a second death after he was crucified. Hmm. Interesting. It, not that- necessarily like separated from God as a non-believer, but he did endure the passage to hell. I've never heard something like that, so that's... I don't know where to go with that. Depending on where you read it. Like I said, some mm-hmm. it's more of a denomination thing. Uh, at least that's what was... Uh, it's very... It's, it's presented in most... Uh, not most, but in, in the mainstream... Not mainstream... It's presented in a lot of uh, reenactments of Easter, actually, if you look it up. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll have to pay attention closer to that when we get back to Easter. So the this 
something to keep in mind when we're when we're uh oh there we go my phone went off um bad me bad me uh anyways <laughs> during recording i left my phone on that's terrible um anyways this we're supposed to keep in mind that uh, there, we got a new perspective on what it means to be rich because these people, like I said, they're the, like the lowest strata. These Christians were like the lowest strata in Smyrna, and they were still called rich by Jesus because they had love for Christ. So that makes us rich when we have love for Christ. And then uh, the crown that they're that they're pr- promised to given if they endure past death is a big, right. big old in, or ancient image during this time crowns were were you know a sign of of um being uh either royalty or you know some some upper strata so for the lowest in the town to be given a crown would make would would be like the biggest thing that they could they could uh, expect from from this uh, persecution and so just just giving the lowest his 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 most faithful believers a crown when they endure to death that's that would be big to a pauper in smyrna at the time and so this is like a big carrot saying do this and you will be exalted pretty much yeah exactly and i think that um that's really encouraging to say that you can be exempt from that living persecution as well as what we were talking about with second death. Mm -hmm. Um, You can be exempt from that living persecution if you are crowned like a king. Yeah. You know. Um, And uh, I did make sure to do some so I, I did make sure to do some research on this, by the way, and it, it depends on it depends on the denomination. But there is a there is a section that does say in Catholicism that Jesus did descend into hell. Oh, okay, that'd be why I haven't heard it because I haven't really studied Catholicism very much. But the big idea to get from Smyrna is that we can bear up under any persecution. And from reading, uh, we're going through the Bible in a year. I, we're going through Job right now, which is pretty much in line with this. You know, it's, it's well, yeah, for sure. I didn't mean to derail there. <laughs> oh no, that's fine. But um, anyways, um, dang. I love the story of Job. But yeah, no, I mean, that's oh right, right. It, and what I'm saying is, what I've gotten from it is that if God allows you to go through tough times, it means He believes you are stronger than those tough times. So it's kind of like the biggest, you know, pat on the back. The the worst the time is like as terrible to think about it as it is. The worst the time is the stronger your faith is according to God. Like He He believes you can make it through it. So okay, that is. I mean that's that's I mean yeah, bear up is what um we have in our notes right now is how we can bear up under any persecution. Mm-hmm. And we move on to Pergamum. Yes, sir. We're at um we're at Pergamum already, huh? Yeah, and only thirty minutes. So Pergamum was a big pagan city. It is a political center for this this uh it was the seat of Asia Minor. So this was like a big political area there was people from all over asia minor 
vying for political power in this. This this would be kind of like Washington D.C., I guess, in a sense. And uh, it was an ancient capital of an empire known as Pergamum. So this this is a an old old city that has been you know rebuilt several times. So. That's what we need to know going into Pergamum. Would you like me to read, or do you want to read? Tell you what, I will do it. All right. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipa, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed to sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. I'll say that again. End of sentence, Nicolaitans. 16. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Uh, the wonderful scripture of Pergamum. So, first off, uh, Balaam, it's actually Balaam. He's one of the big gods of that time. It's just, that's the way it's pronounced, Balaam. Okay. Okay. And Antipa is, I, I'm going to start here with him, because I didn't even write this down, but Antipa was, like, think super Christian, I guess, you know? Like, he's he's the, the man of all Christian men you want to be. He is a faithful servant, a witness, as he said. And what was interesting was that he's, like, in his 80s plus, he's, like, an old, old man at this time, and he is being, or just before this time, and he is just, like, the, the, or the, I don't know the ranks of the, well, no, I'm talking about the ranks of the, the Roman leadership, I'm not studied up in that, but the, the ruler of Pergamum at the time was one of these, these Roman they have funny names, but anyway, she's like a lieutenant or whatever, and he's just like begging Antipa to just renounce Jesus so he doesn't have to kill him. Like, because this guy is is an upstanding citizen, everyone loves him, everyone loves what he does, and he's just like devoted to God. And Antipa is old, and he just won't do it because he's you know doing what he's told by God. And what happened was they went to burn him at the stake. And they lit the fire, and the fire actually like went around him. It didn't even touch him. And this is a common or execution method. They know what they're doing. Like burning people at the stake was something the Romans did a lot, and including crucifixion. So it was like what happened here, and it was just they had to actually stab him with a sword to kill him which is kind of interesting. This was a story that I came across and I completely forgot to write it down in the notes, but uh, this, the seat of Satan, which is an interesting 
thing. This is referring, most scholars believe this is referring to the great altar of Zeus. Okay. Which is, this is a city that is full of temples to other gods, and Zeus is one of the biggest ones here. And it has it has the, the big, the great altar to Zeus is what it's called. Look it up. It's pretty interesting. There's not much left of the altar. Uh, it was taken somewhere else. And this is, uh, this is where the social pressure to do uh, unholy things is highest. Like, there's all these temples and all these guilds. This is a huge city. And the culture is you worship these gods and the emperor and you then you are part of you know untoward society you can be part of the of trade and you're led into groups and stuff like that you know what i mean mm. hence why it's got such a heavy concentration of the the numerous temples being like you were saying like a seat of satan like exactly how they mention it, the seed of Satan, because of the vast variation of just um, spiritual pollution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were, there was three alone to the emperor. There was one for Athena and the great altar of Zeus. These are the big ones that are known, and there's many other little altars. But this was kind of like the the spiritual kind of polit- or um, spiritual capital of. Asia Minor. So hmm. this was this is where the the pressure to worship other gods and do things that are against our beliefs is the highest. And uh, we are this is we are to keep our edge and not compromise on our bi- biblically based beliefs is what God's trying to tell these this church here, and this is important to us today still. And then uh, another note is that that white stone is actually something that happened back then was whenever there was a party or some gala or something like that, you'd get this chunk of marble, like letter size, and it'd have your name on it. And that would be your invitation to the party. So what he's saying there is that if you, if you are victorious and you get some of the hidden mana, you'll be given this white stone with your name that no one knows. So this is like the utmost, like highest, social status party you could ever believe that God is inviting you to that it's so much so no one will even know that you're on the list so to speak so is there anything you'd like to add to, to uh, Pergamum you, you added my uh, you just completed what my question was like okay so we're getting a stone on it what does yeah. that yeah. specifically mean I mean it's a beautiful incentive <laughs> but um, yeah that's yeah that that, that, that white yeah that white stone is is an invitation to heaven pretty much to be part of God's family and he's saying that that is beyond any earthly party you could think of so so are we going to move on to Theotira? uh you have a note here about mythological otherworldly side of fate what were you going on with that so what I was mentioning, I was I sort of threw that in earlier too, is we have, I mean, it, we pretty much covered the basis of that a oh. few minutes ago, and we're talking about the mass concentration of oh, what okay. were those smaller segments yeah. of mythological churches and stuff, but mm-hmm. okay. you know, 
yeah, and then the lesson that I gained from this is we cannot be of Christ and of the world at the same time. We are called to be in the world, but of Christ. Holy means to be set aside. So this is where we're we're kind of thrown in the hot seat today, where it's like, what are you doing that isn't truly biblical? You know, what what are you doing that isn't following Christ? So it's interesting. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I mean, that's we're we're covering with each of these churches. Now we got one more. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you got a lot to say about this city in particular. Yes. I really like how you're giving us a um, sort of a pathological background on each of them because well, it, it really helps me visualize it. Yeah, well, it's same thing as whenever you're studying the Bible, you kind of have to know the background of what you're reading about because this. This was several thousand years ago. It's it's such a different world than what we experience today. So if you don't know what setting this is in, you could very easily misjudge what it's trying to teach you. So I think it's really important that you get a little bit of background on these these cities so that you know because these it doesn't go into huge detail in in the script. You have to know what these people are facing on a daily basis to understand what. God is trying to say to them, and in effect, what He's trying to say to us through them. That um, that's something I've always sort of thought that God's blessed you with. Um, when when it came to like that that massive intuitive, with um, whether it, it came to an influence of people, architecture itself, or just um, settings and themes of an actual world that we just uh, that is very well part of this world that we haven't experienced for ourselves. yeah so thyatira is a is a major trade hub and it's on one of the major trade roads between uh pergamum and laodicea which are two other churches one we talked about one we will cover next time i believe and this this town thyatira was known for its trading guilds this was like the 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 social who is of what is going on in the town. This town has all sorts of textiles and smiths and craftsmen and all sorts of just bustling building economy going on here. And uh, this town was founded initially by Alexander the Great as a military town. So there was a huge military presence here. This is one of the hot seats for the Roman Empire. And textiles was their biggest trade here, and because the water from the area would let them make a unique red textile with the dyes that they used for red dye, that would bring out just this unique red color that most people couldn't make anywhere else, and it probably had to do with the minerals in the water. <clears throat> and the guild runs the economy in this town, and, and celebrate, and they have celebrations to the god Apollo, which is the the sun god. Uh, in which is rough for Christians because this is the guild say having these celebrations. So if you do not come and celebrate with them in the way they celebrate Apollo, they're going to probably kick you out of the guild because Apollo demands that you pay tribute to get his um blessing. So this is pretty much setting up a Jesus or your career setting as we go into reading about Thyatira. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's, that's so, a lot of these 
places have been really applicable to the real life when you were saying like, well, we kind of look at it as like life in New York or LA or something mm-hmm. like that. And if you really think about that, that's intense social pressure as much as it is, it's very real for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think maybe, maybe a real world equivalent would be something like Silicon Valley for Thyatira. Because this is this is a craft hub. This is they're building new things. They're building a lot of things. So this is major innovation sort of place. And I think maybe maybe Silicon Valley is a good you know parallel to that. Me really wrap my. Okay, do you want me to read this one too? Yeah, you're welcome to. Okay, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write: These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Uh, at least my translation said prophetess. Anyway. Yeah, that's, that's fine. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who does not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yeah, wonderful. And so... He starts off like all the other churches. He's he's taking a certain description of them from chapter one. And this one is important to the city, actually, because this is a blazing fire in whose feet are like burnished bronze. So this would make sense to craftsmen dealing with burnished bronze and dealing with the refining fire. So that's he's connecting to the church on a level that they would understand. And then Jezebel is this this uh she's she's a prophetess who is trying to take christians and and help them feel like sacrificing things to the gods and and idolatry is okay and she often tempts them into sexual immorality with this and and uh paul talks about in a in a later or earlier chapter of the bible that you there is things that you can do that are sin in one way, but are not sinning in another way. And this, the food sacrifice to idols is 
if you go to the market and someone sells you food that was sacrificed to the idols and you eat it unwillingly or you know unbeknownst to you 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 just ate this this sacrificial food it's not going to count against you you didn't know about it you didn't partake in it to honor this god or this this idol so you're not you're, that's not a sin then but what these people are doing uh. is at the temple they they would sell this meat too so you you know this is sacrificial meat so there there's kind of no no way around this if you're buying the meat from the temple you know what you're buying so that's what <coughs> he's talking about eating the 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 food sacrificed to idols if if you're buying the food from the temple and eating it you are committing a sin at this point because you know what it's used for there's there's no doubting it you know and a lot of people stumble on that and think it's so weird seriously think it's so weird that like why would food sacrifice to idols that have no power be a sin and th- that is it isn't because we know that they're not the power powerless objects that people worship because they're lost you know uh but if you go to partake in the ritual in a way that kind of recognizes that idol you're 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 giving into that sin and that's where that 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 idea comes from okay you're not just scrounging out uh, scrounging up a, a bunch of meat you happen to find from a random street idol and taking it for yourself, which I mean, in situations of survival, I would say, yeah, that's probably harmless. I, I mean, that makes a little more sense that they were actually distributing this, you know, like you know, repurposing everything where someone might have spent their day, you know, on the flip side of things, they might have spent their entire day bringing up whatever it was they provided to sacrifice to not. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and that's that's the big idea is that if if you if you know the idol has no power, that's the biggest thing that it's not a sin then, and and yeah. that's where this uh, I don't remember the phrase, but everything is permissible. You know that that's where people catch that, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it depends on your mindset when you're doing it. So you got anything that, to? Go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I've heard that about uh, from Paul before, and um, just very briefly, and it confused me as a kid, but now that, you know, with the way that you said it wasn't confusing at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we move on to just uh, confine our focus, uh, hopefully not too much, to Jezebel. And um, some, of, some of the, I mean, she's an important character, so she's a name to keep in mind. Um, obviously, she is a sexual deceiver um, and someone who doesn't just use her status to get what she wants. She openly flaunts it and presents it that way. So, I mean, it's, it's almost just like we were mentioning a little bit earlier with um, how certain states of like being are considered to be, how do I say this? Um, basically, you're achieving something that is heavenly, quote unquote, without reaching heaven first, mm-hmm. or that false sense of hope that you can get from sin itself. Yeah, I think I think I follow what you're saying there, and uh, this 
this was um they often worship their deities through sexual immorality, these orgies and stuff like that. So when when Jezebel is tempting them into this, it's not just to make them sin, it's to make them worship these idols in a way that is just unthinkable as a Christian today. Uh, I don't think it was this... I think it was the, the Temple of Artemis where... These these orgies would be so frenzied and so like crazy in the in the night that men would in their their frenzy castrate themselves to become part of the the priesthood of the temple of Artemis. It was like just when I heard that, I was like, "What are you talking? About? Like, what do you mean they did?" It was just unspeakable what I what I heard. You know, I was like, "Wow, these people." when they were doing these things would get caught up in the fervor of it to the point that they would do, you know, irreversible things like. And that process for the rest of their days. I mean, it it brings up a few questions for me, but I mean, in that, in that sense of that, um, that fury, uh, I mean, that's, that's remarkable when you really think about it, how, Mm -hmm. You know, we just don't think in those situations, not everyone, no. but how, it, you know, that sort of setting could really, that, that level of sin could really bring that out in someone. Yeah, and, and it's it's hard for us as the where we live in modern life to think of how someone could be so caught up in the frenzy to do something like that, which actually kind of brings it back around to the riots where... Most of these riots started out as peaceful protests, and then all of a sudden, one person does something bad, and it just these people are so frenzied that they just get caught up in the violence, and they start burning buildings and stuff like that. So that's an interesting parallel that I kind of drew there. Just at the, I was just thinking the same thing, and (laughs) just as a just as a disclaimer, that doesn't mean we're like. Okay, yeah, so the, the entire point of that cause is bad and riots. We're just saying no, that no. as a, as a trait of human behavior with the way that these situations are working out, we're seeing a lot of that uh, as he put it, that frenzy really mm-hmm. be brought out in human nature. Yeah, no. And and it's it, most protesting is fine. I'm I'm completely on board with protesting. It's as long as it's peaceful, there's no issue. It's if people are so angry about something that when some one person, when one person just does something violent and then the whole crowd gets whipped up into a frenzy over it, that is not okay. And that, that's, that's, that's saying, no, it's scary. And that's the kind of fervor that these, these ancient people would worship their gods with they they would be you know riled up to the point where they do these crazy things for their god in these celebrations to their god and this is the kind of fervor that we don't see religiously so much anymore but we see it in other things like rallies and in protests that turn violent and and stuff like that whenever that's what rioting is is people caught up into a frenzy so that's that's yeah, interesting that that we happen to end on this point with this during this time in the world. That's kind of interesting to have revealed to me to be apocalypse to me, as as the word is. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, Chris? So one very last thing, mm-hmm. just to 
just to bring everything back in, mm-hmm. is at the very end of the chapter, it talks about the fact that how Jesus is going to give um, this person, or it's those who are deemed righteous, the morning star. Out of all the stars and angels that he has in his hand, he's going to give him the morning star. And since um, Jesus is a part of God, but he's also the son of God, he is his own star. So uh, as you were mentioning a little while back um, when we were studying this, is the morning star is Jesus himself embodied. Yep, And that's what most most scholars believe, is that when he's saying these leaders, which it's a little muddying. There's some difference in the translations that it sounds like they're talking about a single leader, which might lead you to think, oh, he's talking about Jesus. But if you read closer, it's talking about multiple leaders. And these people will be given the morning star, which is Jesus himself. And they will they will be his exalted leaders sort of thing. So that's that's what that was referring to. Okay. I, I, I wanted to answer that question for myself at the same time of stating what we had so far, because I mean, I, I've been reading it. I'm sure you mentioned it before, and I just wanted to go over that because, at, you know, the morning stars also. No, it, it's, it's, it's very important for our listeners to know that, and that's why I have you here. You can remind me of the things that I say that I, I need to repeat for everyone else to hear, and that's that's what I love about having you as my co-host, so... Well, thank you, sir. Uh, I think we're getting to about that time, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we're about that at the end of the episode. So it, do you have any any last thoughts before we go? Uh, everyone, God bless. Stay safe uh, with whatever's going on in life. Remember that you can turn to Jesus for any of those questions that, um, that are really affecting you. Um, and any hardships, it's a good place to start with prayer or talking, or seeking Jesus, trust me, it, it it's not something that I can't quote for quote say how it applies to your life, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I can say it applies to your life. Okay, well with that, thank you for listening to the Revelation On Demand. Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you catch your podcast from. Please, if you like what we're doing, share this with a friend, family member, or someone from your church. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to contact me at revelationondemand at gmail.com. God bless, and see you next time.